This episode was produced in partnership with Vitable. So on the one hand, you want to scale and you want to automate and you want to make things as smooth as possible. And on the other hand, you want to personalize as much as possible for customers. So it is complex. I'm not going to lie. Some people, I think at the time, were telling us that we're absolutely crazy. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy, and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. How do you build a fully personalized business to scale? That's the question we're asking today's guest, Lara Lutati. She is the founder of Vitable, Australia's first personalized vitamin and supplements subscription service. A few years ago, Lara was heading up product and customer experience at meal delivery startup HelloFresh when she started to experience really low energy and brain fog, but couldn't figure out why. Like many of us searching for a solution, she went right to the chemist and she was overwhelmed with all of the vitamin bottles on the shelf. And it was in that moment she recognized an opportunity to bring guidance and customization to the experience of buying vitamins. Vitable works like this. Consumers jump onto their website and take a quiz and from your unique answers, an AI-powered algorithm recommends a unique vitamin and supplements pack for you out of 1.2 million possible combinations. These daily personalized packs are then delivered straight to your door each month in plastic-free home compostable sachets. Since launching in 2019, Vitable has delivered over half a million recommendations to consumers, grown to a team of over 20 people, and they've expanded internationally into New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and the Philippines. In this chat, we spoke about why Lara has remained committed to a decision to develop her own products rather than purchasing white label vitamins, despite the fact it is a way more expensive way to do it. How the current economic climate has brought in new challenges for startups in managing their pathway to profitability and the unique operational challenges that she's facing while scaling a business that sends out fully personalized deliveries each month. I grew up in Morocco and then I studied in France because it's quite common for I guess people growing up in Morocco, especially because my mom is French, to study in uh, France because the academic system is a little bit more advanced. Because I think I grew up in Morocco, in sunny Morocco, with, you know, sunshine, going to the beach on the weekend and surfing. I was looking for a place that was a little bit similar in that, in that sense. And when I was living in Paris and studying, I thought it was a little bit too urban for me. And I decided to just, you know, try something new. And Australia was definitely on the top of the very high on the list of places I wanted to explore. So I decided to leave my job in France. I was in consulting at the time and just come to Australia and travel here for a year and see if I liked it. And you never left. Exactly. <laughs> Fell in love, clearly. <laughs> I feel like that's a common story. People come for a sort of year or a holiday and then they just never leave. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is a pretty beautiful country, let's be honest. <laughs> it is. So after a year, what did you do? Did you start working? Where did you end up? I came here initially just to travel a little bit, but because I didn't have a lot 
of savings. I was doing a few different jobs. So I worked in hospitality. I worked, you know, in different places. And I decided also to do my farm work. So I did, I worked on a cattle farm in Australia. I worked on a fruit farm, which was super interesting and uh, an amazing experience. And after all that, and when I decided to stay at least for another year, I looked for a job. Because I had that consulting background, I was able to join HelloFresh, so the milk kit delivery company. They were looking for someone with a consulting background with, who could bring in more of a data-driven approach to what they were doing. And I, they were looking for someone who was also obsessed with food. So that was a great, a great fit, a great match. And I joined them end of 2015. And what were you doing there? What was your role? What sorts of projects were you working on? So I was brought on board initially to lead the product team, which was, it's not digital, so it was the physical product, which is everything that goes in the box, all the recipes, the culinary team, basically. So at the time, it was an amazing team of uh, chefs. So people were more experienced in developing recipes for restaurants, for cafes, or for magazines. And obviously, being, you know, a direct-to-consumer business behind, we needed to I guess, focus a lot more on margins and the uh, return on investment of the recipes that we were developing and making sure that they, they, we were developing, you know, giving, providing value to the customer, but also building a business that was sustainable. And so I um, helped organize, you know, building frameworks and organizing frameworks in order to help the shelf be creative, but at the same time, make sure that the recipes that we were developing were made sense for the business. So that's how I started. Then we grew the team and very quickly we I took more responsibility and some of my responsibilities were actually to take care of the customer experience overall. So everything that went in the box, but also new product development and the, all the ingredients and making sure that we were delivering value and, and delivering an amazing experience to, for the customers. Was there a lot of taste testing involved? I was going to ask the exact same question. I'm like, this sounds like a really ideal job. You get to try everything, yeah, surely? Yes, exactly. Yes. There was a lot, a lot of uh, tasting involved uh, and everyone was very happy about it, I can tell you. So, yeah, the chefs were, were churning recipes in the kitchen, trying new ingredients, trying new spices, new cheeses. It was always very exciting to be at the office, really. What a really interesting time also to be working with HelloFresh because I feel like that was a time when the delivery meal kits were really growing and also growing right before COVID and then everyone kind of got locked down and it was just a nice way to be able to, um, you know, receive your kits, be able to still build and create healthy meals and not have to think too hard. Was it exciting to be part of a business that was growing so rapidly? It was really exciting because they were, it, it's a mix of different things. I think it's the excitement to be part of a brand that was becoming more and more famous and more and more known. I remember when I joined and people were asking me what I was doing, not many people knew where I was working and slowly you could see that things were changing. And when you started mentioning HelloFresh, you would always have exciting people saying, yeah, I order HelloFresh. I love it. It helps me so much. It inspires me so much with my cooking. So that was great. I think helping people put delicious food on their on their table was uh, was something that, that was amazing to be part of. And uh, we were a bunch of very driven people as well in the company. And um, we were lucky enough to have, you know, the management was giving us quite a lot of responsibility and we could develop new products and we could really lead our own projects. And we were being trusted, I guess, to do that. And I think that's uh, that that's what, what was the most exciting at the time for us. 
Sounds like a great entrepreneurial environment. Um, environment. Yeah. yeah. Was it your first experience working in a subscription-based business? Yeah, that was my first experience working in a startup and also in a subscription-based business, which was really exciting and interesting as well. I guess I learned a lot about direct-to-consumer brand, subscription models, uh, what works, what doesn't, and you know the unit economics attached to such a model. And so during this time, an idea started percolating off the back of an experience that you had in the supermarket or at the pharmacy at the vitamin shelf. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment, that experience, and when you started to kind of conceive of this idea? Yeah, definitely. So when I was working in the milky delivery company, I I was probably putting a lot of pressure on myself as well. I, I guess it was a dynamic environment and there was a lot to be done, but I was probably overstretching myself myself a little bit. And so I started being a little bit run down and I didn't realize, I think, uh, how much my lifestyle and diet were impacting my nutrient level and, and my health overall. So I started having some symptoms such as brain fog, um, lethargy, you know, afternoon slump, um, a little bit being a little bit more tired than I, than I would like to in the afternoon. And initially, I just thought that was normal. And then in order to improve these symptoms, I go, like a lot of people would do, I googled them and tried to find a solution. And I just found myself extremely overwhelmed with the amount of conflicting information that I could find online. There was a lot of, you know, very bad scenarios and a few where, you know, just, I don't know, drink water and you'll be fine. So I just, I just couldn't find something that made sense to me or that I could trust. And then like a lot of people as well, I went to the chemist and I just browsed through the aisles of thousands of bottles that you can find typically at the chemist. And I I couldn't find anything suitable either. I was just, again, extremely overwhelmed because there were a lot of, of bottles with either overpromising claims or words that I could not understand. And I, I just you know, left there not being, not feeling that uh, anything could help me. Unlike most people, I was, uh, I was lucky enough at HelloFresh to have um, access, I guess, uh, in my team to a nutritionist and a, and a naturopath. And they were um, recipe developers at the time, and they were extremely, extremely passionate. And, and they are still extremely passionate about health and how lifestyle and diet impact your overall health. They started seeing, I guess, that I was not feeling too well and started asking me a lot of questions about my habits and how, how many veggies I was eating per day, you know, what was the exercise I was doing and things like that. And initially, I couldn't quite understand why it mattered. But then slowly, they started educating me and really teaching me how my body was working and how nutrient level can impact things like cognitive function and energy levels. And so very simple examples where basically I was already stressed, as I was saying, and stress, as we know, puts a lot of uh, of pressure on your body. But I was also exercising a lot. And so I was doing high intensity exercise every morning because I thought that was helping with stress. You know, you just sweat it out, they say, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. Sweat it out. Yep. And actually, they taught me that high intensity exercise for people who are already quite stressed is not necessarily suitable because you will increase your cortisol level. You know, your body is in fight or flight mode and uh, you will feel even more drained. So she suggested that if I liked it, I shouldn't obviously completely stop, but I should definitely balance it out with some walks and some low intensity exercise and some stretching because that was necessary for my body to balance out, you know, things that were 
I would say kind and things that were a bit more more intense. So that was one of them. The other one was I, I hadn't really been eating fish or seafood for a while and and I was feeling uh, that my you know my skin was becoming a little bit uh, dry and I was feeling run down and I was feeling getting sick quite easily and because they were professional I started taking zinc and in uh, I'm not kidding after a few weeks only I started feeling completely different. And it's because zinc helps also transform food into energy. So there was no secret what I was getting uh, nutrients I was missing and and it was helping me with energy levels and um, with other, I guess, of my some other symptoms as well. It's interesting you say you're a skeptic because I think that's quite a common theme when we think about vitamins. Like not only it's such an overwhelming aisle in the chemist, but also does it actually work? And I think that's quite a common conception. Would you would you agree? Yes, definitely. I guess I hear I've now being you know having started Vitable and being into in in the vitamin and supplement business, I hear that question a lot. Now, for me, it's, it's almost I, I almost laugh about it because I used to be that person asking, "Do they work?" And I think it's also because of how the industry works, right? A lot of brands, unfortunately, sell the magic pill, you know, the, the pill that will make your hair grow a one meter in a month's time. And, and I don't think it works this way, right? Because the, the ingredients that are in that magic pill might not be suitable for you because one, may, you may be getting enough of them through your diet and they might not be the reason why your hair is thinning, for example. So that's why at Vitable, we take a personalized approach. We not only ask you what health goal, what concern you, you're looking at improving, but we're also asking you questions about your diet and your lifestyle habits so we can understand a bit more why you may be experiencing these symptoms and what would be the most suitable vitamin or supplement to help you. So, Lara, I'm interested. Obviously, you've experienced this problem. You are feeling fatigued, run down. You've got experts that are asking you really insightful questions to help you navigate your journey and figure out what you need. And then you obviously thought, well, hang on, this level of personalized service is actually quite helpful in understanding what nutrients I'm missing. I think there's a business, you know, that could that could be born out of this idea. Was it kind of like, okay, I need to create vitamins that are going to help other people? Or was it I need to create the service and perhaps the technology, the back end to be able to offer a personalized service in order to then deliver the vitamins? Or was it a bit of both? Yeah, when we think about that time where I I was experiencing the symptoms and then I got the help of the ladies in the team, that's where I had an epiphany and I realized that there was an opportunity to help people figure out their own health and just simplify that whole experience. And we understand, you know, that not everyone has the means to afford a naturopath or nutritionist because these things can add up quite quickly and it can be very expensive. So I'm not saying that you sh- you know they they're not useful they are perfectly useful but for some people who just don't have the time or cannot really afford it i wanted to create a solution that would give people just empower people to make their own decision and take care of their own health it started with a simple motto and i know it sounds mundane but i was t- that we wanted to make feeling good an everyday thing 
because I had spent so much time focusing on, you know, my brain fog and trying to push hard to be able to focus on my task. But with a brain fog, it was even harder or focusing on, you know, being bloated all afternoon. And that was taking more energy than, you know, what I wanted to do during that day. So I want to help people take care of these things that may, you know, take a lot of energy and take a lot of focus so they can just enjoy the thing that they love doing the most, focus on their family, focus on their work, focus on their hobbies. And that's what we call, you know, feeling good, basically. And so you decided to develop your own vitamins, your own product. Why did you decide to do that? And was that a hard process? It sounds like a complicated one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, we wanted to, and, and maybe back to, you, to your previous question, we wanted to develop two things. One, a solution, like a guidance solution. So that's the personalization, the quiz that we have on our website and all the recommendation that we've built with health experts, but also coupled with high quality products. And high quality product for us mean vitamins that are made under very stringent standards, but also in the right dose. So doses that will work and also the selecting the best quality ingredients. So that means, uh, you know, the ingredients in the best form and source from the best possible location when relevant, basically. And so, yes, that's why I wanted to make my own products. And we wanted to make our products in Australia as well. The regulation in Australia is, is very stringent. Vitamins and supplements are regulated by the TGA, so Therapeutic Good Administration. Just that was actually very interesting for us because we wanted to ensure obviously high quality and safety for our customers. It was very tricky to develop our own products. Yeah. I mean, talk us through the process. Like what challenges did you come against and who were the experts that you were working with? I came to the field, I guess, with, you know, I don't have a degree, obviously, in, in nutrition, and but I'm, I'm extremely passionate about it. And, and I knew that I needed to surround myself with the best experts, um, people who are also passionate about the field, but that have the kind of credentials to, to make it relevant. So I started talking to pharmacists, naturopaths, nutritionists, and also TGA experts to try to develop, you know, product portfolio that could get us started. So I would say the essential vitamins, the ones that, you know, the, your body doesn't, cannot produce, but that you need uh, day to day to function properly. And some also additional products that made sense for the most common health goals. I started approaching some manufacturers as well in order to understand, you know, the cost associated, the process, the timelines. And it was very, very hard at the very beginning, not being, you know, a known brand and being just at the very early stage of even just registering the business to get people to listen and to just even lock in meetings or get people to answer to emails. And so I had to contact probably 50 people before getting, you know, an answer. And I had to push very, very, very hard and very extremely convincing for people to, you know, start trusting me and being interested in the concept that I wanted to bring to life and just accept to contract manufacture vitamins for us. How did you build the trust in those de early days? Because it is difficult when you have no track record and you're just trying to get someone to understand, believe, realize the vision with you. It's a mix of being convincing and I think finding people who are open to listening to you and trusting you and want to give it a, a go as well. So I started, I remember after emailing all the possible contract manufacturers in, in Australia, I started actually contacting, reaching out to some of the MDs of those contract manufacturing facilities on LinkedIn. I thought that, you know, perhaps on a personal level, that would, that would be 
a bit easier to get through. So I contacted them. And again, I just, you know, to start with, I think uh, not asking too much of people and just, you know, asking for a coffee or asking for a chat to get their expert advice was probably the thing that was going to get through a little bit easier than just saying, look, I want to develop all the range of, of vitamins and I'm some, you know, you don't know me and I just registered my business. That may be a little bit harder. And I was lucky to find one person at the time who accepted to have a coffee. And he was the head of a contract manufacturing facility, one of the big ones in Australia. And he just listened to, you know, my vision and, and how I was seeing health and how I wanted to develop Vitable. And he decided to trust me. And with them, we developed our first 12 products, I think. So and we're still working with them today. It's very grateful, I guess, that that person trusted me at, at the early stage. challenges through throughout the negotiation period because I imagine that it's a decent investment in terms of stock for 12 products and I imagine MOQs in Australia are quite high. How, how did you navigate that process as a new brand? I mean you did fundraise which we'll get into but it would have been a costly exercise I imagine. Very good point, a very good question. It was for a little while a big discussion piece with my co-founder because we wanted you know, when you when you start your business, obviously you're all, you're always thinking about MVP, so minimum viable product, because you it's it's better to put something out there and see if it works, and then iterate, but you know fail fast so you can learn fast. The problem when you start thinking about vitamins and supplements is that you want to ensure that you're putting the best possible product out there. So there was a little bit of discussion around it because obviously we wanted to be able to start and not invest because there is always a high chance you will you will make a mistake and you're going to fail or, you know, actually it's, it was not the right model for the market. Uh, but at the same time, you want good quality products. So initial discussions that we we had with advisors and even uh, early stage investor or potential investors was get white label products and don't necessarily develop your own range. And, you know, people won't really see the difference. We know that, you know, many startups have done that. I'm not going to lie, you know, we considered it and we thought about it and we just, it didn't, just didn't sit right. So what we did is that we negotiated with suppliers to have the lowest possible MOQ, even if it was still considered you know, quite high, but the lowest possible MOQ to start with a small range, but a small range of products that we are very happy to put out there. We had to convince our initial investors to follow us in the thinking and in the strategy. But I think very quickly they understood that without a great product, we couldn't launch you know, the great company that we wanted to launch. And how did it all come out? Were you happy with the end result? Like, what did you learn during that product creation process? I imagine you needed to tweak things. There were things that just, you know, you had to go back to the drawing board. What were some of the biggest lessons in that in that process? I think the biggest lesson was probably with everything that we do is is uh, personalized. So all our we pack all the vitamins into daily sachets. You have your name on it. We also send you personalized booklets with all the information about your vitamins, where you have them in your pack, and then you get you know your personalized delivery showing up monthly on your doorstep. And all these um, things obviously require a lot of development from a technical perspective, also from a supply chain perspective. It was it, it's a very exercise. So I think initially what we what we did 
was to want to perhaps overcomplicate it. And we wanted, you know, everything to be absolutely perfect in the sense that we wanted, you know, a booklet that looked a certain way. We wanted a box that looked a certain way. And we didn't want to compromise initially. And that costed us probably some delivery delays or some packing delays that actually were not necessarily optimal for the customer. And so one lesson that we learned was probably that it is okay if your if your booklet doesn't look perfect and it's not exactly you know what you had in mind as long as it does the job so you can already you know start shipping your product to customers and then you get your initial feedback and you can iterate quickly I think it's an interesting point. I think the numbers have to stack up. It has to be a viable business opportunity, a viable business model. And so pulling back on those non-critical elements, I mean, it's a smart tactic. Obviously, you don't want to pull back on the actual product itself and the efficacy, but making those compromises on the the non-critical elements, um, knowing that later down the track when you have the volume, you have the opportunity to do that. Exactly. You said it's a minimum viable product, but there's viable in it. And, yeah, and so totally. it, yeah, it, needs to, it needs to make sense. But minimum is, uh, is also something that is quite important, I think, especially when you get started. I want to just quickly touch on the process of kind of having these conversations with investors about white labeling versus developing your own product. And I think that's a really interesting point because we hear a lot about sort of getting investors that have money, but also the right investors who share the vision and the values, et cetera. Have you had many difficult conversations with investors in terms of, I guess, the vision and how you're planning on rolling out the business? Really good question as well. I think when we started Viable, we got initial funding at pre-revenue, pre-product stage. So investor invested in us on based on a vision, as you said. So luckily, because they had you know invested based on this vision, we didn't have too many back and forth in how we were looking at developing the product. I think the only challenging us on our thinking, but they were very much trusting us to be in the driver's seat. I think the one who can challenge you, meaning ask the right questions, at the same time also let you make the ultimate decision and progress the way you are seeing it should progress. Otherwise, it can become very, I guess, frustrating. And, you know, obviously, investors are extremely experienced. They've seen many, many startup work, many startup fail. So I'm not going to question their experience and their ability to understand what may work and what doesn't. But ultimately, you know the business and you know your customers and you know the vision. So it's, it's, it's very important to find a partner who also trusts that, I think. It's pretty impressive receiving fundraising in Australia, yeah. pre-revenue, pre-product. Unusual. Ha- very unusual. How did you do that? What was your pitch? Yeah. We got investment from a European fund. Ah, okay. And it's true that it is uncommon perhaps in Australia to get, especially for a direct-to-consumer brand, to get uh, funding. And that was especially true, I think, back in the days. I think it's changing a little bit. But three years ago, getting funding for pre-revenue direct-to-consumer brands, probably very, very tricky in Australia. And I guess I was lucky again here that, you know, because I worked at HelloFresh and I had built good relationships with the global founders because it's a, it's a German company, I was able to secure foundings from the same investors as HelloFresh. And so I had access to them. We had, you know, very interesting discussions on the market, on why Australia is uh, always, um, I think, again, a very good location to start a direct-to-consumer business and prove a concept. 
And it, it was the case for HelloFresh. HelloFresh was very, very successful in Australia. So we, we kind of had very aligned vision on, on subscription model, direct-to-consumer brand, why Australia to get started. And that's why they trusted me and invested in Vitable very early, at very early stage. Why Australia and why subscription? Like, what was that pitch to them? Australians... On a, you know, have higher, perhaps higher income than some European countries. And although it's 25 million people, there is a high amount of discretionary spend. So people will spend more money on skincare, beauty products and, and health products than in Europe. It's not necessarily true compared to the US, but at least compared to Europe. I think for this reason, and the fact that the penetration of vitamin and supplements in Australia was already really high, it was a very good case, you know, for, for our business model, one. And then second, what I found always really interesting is that Australia is the number one exporter of vitamin and supplement to Asia, Asia Pacific. And so some investor can see Australia as being limited in terms of size because of the 25 million people. It's, it's actually, you can actually multiply by, you know, 10 or more your total addressable market when you think about Asia Pacific. And that's why we did very quickly uh, a year and a half after launching Vitable, we started shipping to New Zealand and Singapore. And we tested it initially by just investing, you know, a little bit of money into our marketing, not necessarily localizing, just to, to test. We basically opened shipping there. And very quickly, we saw that there was an amazing opportunity to ship to more countries in Asia Pacific. And today, international countries represent more than 20% of our monthly sales. So it's growing really fast. So Lara, are you in or about to enter another fundraising process? What's changed? I mean, obviously the current economic climate is putting a lot of pressure on founders. Yeah, I guess investors are just looking at companies in a, in a different way. What have you found lately? Are you about to embark on the process again? So in regards to your first question, uh, we've just uh, closed recently um, convertible notes. So we, we raised some some capital, which was extremely good, I guess, because we did it at the at the right time. So that um, you know gives us some flexibility, and and you know there's less pressure on our business model. So that's great. But in regards to the current landscape, what we've seen. Compared to last year, when valuations were extremely high and where, uh, for some business model, you know, growing and burning a lot was very much supported, I think that the change this year, given the possible economic recession and interest rate that are raise, rising, is more pressure on businesses to focus on profitability and unit economics. I think that. It makes sense, right? Because obviously a business is supposed to be sustainable, become sustainable at some point. So that makes a lot of sense. But I think that for some companies, some businesses, it was something that perhaps they were looking at focusing on in the next couple of years and, you know, two to three years, but not necessarily turning to profitability straight away in the next six to 12 months. So I think it's, it's a lot of pressure on founders to completely shift the thinking and shift the way we look at growing the business and, sh and shift the way we're structuring the business, even from a team or from a spend perspective. What are you changing? Like what, yeah, what are you, what's shifting? What, how has the strategy changed? The things perhaps that we're shifting is looking at the core of what we're doing. So before we may have wanted to try, you know, different 
perhaps launching, you know, more products or try different things and try different revenue revenue stream that are not completely different from what we're doing, but perhaps some projects that could have had a lot of potential, but may have taken maybe two years to make sense from a profitability perspective. We may, you know, postpone these these projects to later or even just kill them and just focus on doing what we do even better. Back to basics, focus the team on the core of our business and only hire new team members to focus on the core of the business. Nothing too new or nothing too different from what we're doing. It's an interesting one because changing from a two to three year timeline, as an example, the pathway to profitability down to a six to 12 month timeline That's a huge shift. How do you manage, I guess, the work across the business, but also communicating that new plan to the team? Because you've got 20 people in the team now, and even though it's a tight team, it's still, you know, you have to make sure that everyone's clear and on board with the new plan and aligned. How have you done that? Very good question. I think it's part of uh, of uh, setting ourselves up for success is making sure that we communicate the objectives and plan, you know, in the next few quarter, but also the, the next year's plan to the team. And so in order to do that, what we've done is that we, we created a process that we call OKRs. So perhaps you, you've heard about. So it's making sure that the whole company, you know, from senior level to more junior level, know exactly what we're trying to achieve. High level, I would say, in terms of revenue, in terms of profitability goal, but also on a more detailed level, what does it mean in terms of metrics and making sure that we also are very transparent between teams to for each team member to understand the focus on the other teams and that everyone is, is as supported as possible to other team members. So I think communication, transparency have been definitely helping getting everyone on board in the team. So we've spoken about the product um, a little bit, but I'm really interested to learn more about the process end-to-end from, you know, creating the product through to delivery and the consumption by your customers. Obviously, like this is a personalized business. You're delivering personalized solutions, but you're trying to deliver that in the most efficient and scalable way. Where's the tension in that? Can Can you talk us through? When you put it this way, it's true. It sounds like opposite uh, strategy. So on one, on the one hand, you want to scale and you want to automate and you want to make things as smooth as possible. And on the other hand, you want to personalize as much as possible for customers. So it is complex. I'm not going to lie. It's all in how we want to use technology. There were two different choices that we could uh, that we could make when we started our to build I guess our tech stack. It was to take an off, use an off the shelf system that you know a lot of companies I would say are using and perhaps just try to customize it as much as possible or take a hybrid approach where we almost build everything from scratch. Some people, I think at the time, were telling us that we were absolutely crazy, but we decided to go with the hybrid solution because we were concerned with the off-the-shelf solution. It would be, we would be limited very quickly. So basically for us, being able to customize as much as possible the technology was going to help us achieve you know, the goal of being hyper-personalized, but at the same time being able to scale. And so I think bringing on board the right people very early on, so people who are passionate about technology and passionate about solving problems, is definitely something that we did well. The way we do it as well is that we work very closely with our manufacturing facility or packing facility in order to make sure that all the tools that we build make their processes as 
uh, easy as possible. So enabling customers to get their own personalized sachet, their own personalized pack, but in a scalable manner. So have you had to invest in your own um, like physical personalized printing capability? And is that have you had to invest in that physical infrastructure or is that your manufacturer that sort of has done that for you? It's an interesting one because for a while we were uh, obviously printing each booklet that we print is for a given customer. There is no printing 10,000 at a time, right? It's one made specially for you. And so we were working with a, a facility, a printing facility that was printing all the booklets one by one and actually delivering them daily to our uh, packing facility in order to um, enable us to be to deliver a fully personalized experience. And it sounds absolutely crazy, but we designed processes basically that helped us make that achievable. And now it's a little bit more automated and it's printed on the line. But it was very important to start with a more artisanal solution, I would say, in order to make sure that whatever we were building was going to work for the customer, but also also be able to scale in the future. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, impressive. That's, <laughs> yeah, that is really impressive. So we wanted to end with a couple of wrap-up questions. We wanted to know your best piece of advice for aspiring founders that are perhaps listening to this conversation. It's very easy when thinking about you know, launching a business and getting started and, and, and different ideas. It's very easy to think about the enormous amount of things to do or like the huge, yeah, the huge list of tasks that it might involve. But I think that trying to scale back and just breaking it down into micro steps, but just starting somewhere, I think is very, very important. But I think that trying to build that confidence that, you know, other people have do, have done it. And if you if you start and if you trust yourself and trust the process, you know, you, you can be successful. Definitely. And finally, what's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned about yourself during this journey? I think being able to let go of perfectionism is very, very important. It's not everything you do as a founder can be perfect. I think far from it, really, but at least letting go of the expectation that it has to be perfect, that you have to be, you know, the, a perfect leader, that you cannot make any mistake, that everything that you say should be inspiring or correct, or that everything that you produce, um, the you know, work that you produce needs to be absolutely amazing. When you get rid of those expectations from yourself, you start really flowing, you know, and then you, as long as you know that you're doing your best and that you're obviously working hard because you need to put the work in, I think that you need to kind of trust yourself that you're doing the right thing and just being gentle to yourself as well, because it is a hard job that you're doing and you need to also have kind words for, for yourself and just uh, trust that you're doing the right thing. It's a beautiful place to end it. Be kind to to thyself. Thyself. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was really amazing. Thank you. I think the biggest takeaway or reminder from this chat is that it is okay and, in fact, it's actually necessary to start small. 
As Lara shared when she was starting out, every single customer booklet was individually printed. Every customized delivery was individually packaged. This way of doing things is obviously not scalable. There are limitations. But if she was to focus on that problem at the very beginning of her business, she actually probably wouldn't have started at all. So if you're just starting out or if you're creating a a new product, a new service, you're going into a new category, you're going into a new market, you're extending your brand in some way. Anytime you're doing something new and scary in your business, remember to start small. Start by taking that one first step. Okay, that's it from this episode. We have a little bit of a favor to ask. We would absolutely love your feedback and your guest recommendations. Who do you want us to interview? Who are you dying to hear from? Come and find us on Instagram. We're at lady.brains and shoot us a DM with your guest requests. 